Our scripture today comes from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. What is your least favorite question? That's an easy one for me. How are you? I never know what to do with it. Do you really want to know how I am? How much do you want to know? Sometimes I start answering and then say more than I intended to. It's a complicated question. But it gets to the heart of what the church is about. And that's where our text is going this morning. We rightly emphasize the necessity of being deeply rooted in Jesus Christ with a rich devotional life of Scripture and prayer. If you don't eat and you don't breathe, you can't live, you can't thrive, physically or spiritually. But my sense is that Americans, and this can be true around the world as well, I suppose, we particularly tend to neglect or minimize another divinely ordained means of spiritual vitality, which is the church, in which we really get to know each other and ask, complicated questions like, how are you? And try to help each other grow and serve the Lord. When I say the church, I mean the community of believers in fellowship with each other, truly connected with each other, with lives that are somewhat intertwined. Well, that's where today's passage is taking us in verses 24 and 25, but not before a thorough reiteration of where Hebrews has already taken us in the first 10 chapters, as reviewed in verses 19 through 23. Hebrews 10 is another turning point. Some call it the second turning point of the book, linked to the first major turning point in Hebrews 4 that Pastor Nathan preached on Thanksgiving weekend, exactly three months ago today. You remember it well, don't you? Nathan expressed the truth, the key truth of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest who brings us into a unique relationship or position before God. Now, how does he do that? 
Well, his text said, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and then based on that great truth, two exhortations, let us hold fast our confession that Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and let us draw near to the throne of grace, that is, Jesus continues to be our provision mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Now, that was three months ago that Nathan gave that great message. It's online. Go listen to it. It's, it's excellent. Since then, Pastors Jeff and Joey, and I had one shot at it myself, have taken us through an extended uh, section, chapters 5 through the middle of chapter 10, that has this focus of Jesus as our great high priest that continues to develop that great truth, this great high priest who brings us into a relationship with God. The focus has been to show how Jesus has fulfilled the promise of salvation that is expressed in the Old Testament, but only through rituals and symbols. Hebrews 10 picks up the ideas, the structures, and encouragements of Hebrews 4, so that if Hebrews 5 through the middle of chapter 10 were missing in our Bibles and we were just reading from chapter 4 right into 10, 19, you'd never know it. Unless you knew that passage, you'd never know anything was missing. It would flow right into it. So Nathan introduced my text three months ago, and I want to show you how his passage and mine are interrelated, how it's an extension of Hebrews 4, and to show you that it's the same structure. It has one sense and two lettuce applications compared to my text today that has two sense uh, foundational principles and three lettuce points of application. So I'm just going to put this up for you, a little bit of a classroom moment here before we get back to the sermon. Look at the left side, since we have a great high priest, and then on the right side, verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Left side, verse 14, it was passed through the heavens, right to the uh, right there, opened for us through the curtain, and then Jesus, the Son of God, by the blood of Jesus. So, same thing. Verse 14, left side, let us hold fast our confession. Right side, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 16, let us then with confidence. Right side, verse 19, since we have confidence. So, over these five or six chapters, we're gaining confidence because of who Christ is and what He's done. And then, let us draw near to the throne of grace. That is, verse 19 on the right side, to enter the holy place. Verses 24 and 25, however, bring important new teaching to the table, specific practical application of what we need to be that we need to be spiritually strong and fruitful in Christ. Today's passage of uh, seven verses is just one sentence in the original language. It is made a little easier for us in the translations by making it three sentences. But the structure of the passage is quite simple. Verse 19, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest, so there's two senses or becauses here, Therefore, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. So two bedrock principles, since this and since this, lead to three applications, three let us imperatives that come from the person and work of Jesus. So you might say we have a let us salad this morning with three types of let us in it. Uh, packed with spiritual nutrients for our thriving in Christ. One more thing I I want you to see in each of these three let us imperatives. Each one highlights one of the three virtues of faith, hope, and love. Look at it. Verse 22, let us draw near in faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast our hope. Verse 24, let us consider love and good works. We start with a foundational principle, restatements of what we've seen in the past five or six chapters, that the writer summarizes where we've been. Since, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. There is a double sense or double cause or basis for what he will then encourage us to do. He doesn't just say, you need to go do this, this, and this. He says there's a foundation for it. There's a reason for it. It's essentially this, our confidence of entering entering into a relationship with God is Jesus, our great high priest. Hebrews 4, 16, we're told, let us then with confidence draw near. Now he says in verse, in, in, the, in our text, since we have confidence, verse 19. How did we get this confidence? How did we get it? I'm reading through the Bible again this year, as I do every year. And this morning, I finished up about a 10-day read through Leviticus. Thank you. It's a great read. Essential background to Hebrews. But there's a lot of repetition in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and then it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. But it really goes back to Exodus, right before Leviticus, the problem of how to safely enter into a relationship with God, which is not safe. It's not safe. There's no confidence. It's terrifying to even approach God, who is holy. Do you remember this? If you've not read it, you need to go read Exodus and and get this, chapters 18, 19, 20. Israel came to Mount Sinai after being delivered out of Egyptian slavery through the Passover. So that's the big salvation story for Israel that is a picture of the much greater salvation that we have in Christ. They've come out of slavery. They meet God at the mountain. What is happening at the mountain? The mountain is quaking. The mountain has uh, 
It's rumbling, there's, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's smoke. A dark cloud descends. The Lord descends on it in fire and they're warned. Stay back. Stay back. Don't come up any higher. Don't come any closer. It's not safe. God is holy. You are not holy. Don't get too close to God. Even Moses, the man of God, can't see God fully and survive. So it's a confusing relationship. God promises to be with them, and you see all of those kinds of things in the language in the Old Testament, and, and live among them, and, be, uh, and, and they can be His people, and yet it's not safe for sinners to come into direct contract, uh, interaction with God. And so this whole system is given by God with priests and sacrifices and a tabernacle and a holy place where no one can go except the priests, and then a most holy place where only the high priest can go in only once a year after an awful lot of careful washings and, and preparation with sacrifices. There is this barrier between God and the people that it's not safe to cross. The sacrifices were in some sense supposed to overcome this but could only do it in a limited way. So we've learned in Hebrews, it's deeply rooted in all of this, this section of the books of Moses, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. We, we've learned in Hebrews that these Old Testament things are but symbols and shadows of reality. And that's what we've been reviewing the last several weeks. But with the good news that this problem of access to God has been resolved by Jesus through His death and resurrection, what none of those Old Testament sacrifices could do. And then His ascension into heaven is such that it opens the way for us to draw near to God, to enter into the presence of God without fear. That's a big deal. So, the gospel accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus tell us that when Jesus died, the great curtain, look at verse 20, this great curtain that was over the holy place of the temple that kept you from going in, that kept you from seeing in, that it was rent in two, it was shredded symbolically opening access to God. We're getting a little Exodus uh, thunder and lightning here this morning, sounds like. That's the Kansas wind that came visiting Indiana this, uh, this, uh, this weekend. The holy place is opened up, but even that is just symbolic for a much greater thing. Verse 19 and 20, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain. Well, no, it's not really the curtain. That is through His flesh, through His dying for us. That's what opened it up. And so essentially His suffering and death on the cross is how Jesus opens access for us to God. As Tim Keller says, everything has been removed that prevents my entrance. Now I can go in. So our confidence of entering into a relationship with God is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Verse 21, and since we have 
a great high priest over the house of God. Same language as Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Or even back to Hebrews 3.6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's the one who can open the way to God's house for us who opens the door to us. It brings to mind Jesus' words in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Or those beautiful words from John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and take you to myself. And in response to the question, Thomas says, how can we know the way? We don't know the way. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. He's the door, he's the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father or enters in except through me. So he is our great high priest through whom we have access to God the Father. Now, based on this glorious truth, three applications. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. These are not suggestions. These are commands, these are imperatives. I'm going to give very brief attention to the first two and then camp with a bit more reflection on the last one. First, let us draw near in faith. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That has to happen. We can't enter in with our sin. We have to be cleansed. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now remember the parallel in Hebrews 4.16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, think that we may receive mercy and find grace. Now remember, again, this is a shocking idea. To draw near to God in the Old, old Covenant, it's not safe. You can't do it. It's dangerous. It's even deadly. God's up on the mountain. This is all uh, symbolic and shadows of reality as well. But, but God's on the mountain. Don't go up there or you'll die. God's in the holy place of the tabernacle, later the temple. You can't go in there. So how do we draw near? Well, remember the foundation of what Christ has done for us to make possible our entrance. Then how do we draw near with a true heart? It's not outward ritual, it's not more sacrifices, it's not religious activities, but from a genuine seeking of God, coming to Him with a dependence and recognition of your need, with true heart, in full assurance of faith, full confidence in Christ's work for us, trusting in God for our justification by faith. That's Paul's language, it's not Hebrew language, but they certainly intersect here. As Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not your good works, not your religious activities, but God's grace received by faith. It's the gift of God. And therefore, he says in Romans, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Hebrews says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that has the heart uh, cleansed conscience, and then bodies washed with pure water. 
Now, some think, oh, it must be baptism. Anytime water comes up, people think baptism. But it doesn't say that. And I don't think it has anything to do with it. It's referencing back, rather, to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, parallel passage, in which there's a transformation of the heart and there's the cleansing from sin. He quotes from Jeremiah 31 and verse 16 above, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is the new birth to be born again by the Spirit, a spiritual conversion that involves both transformation and purification. And so because of Jesus, our great high priest, we can do what was impossible in the old covenant. Let us draw near to God in faith. Secondly, let us hold fast our hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We've seen this before, haven't we? Hebrews 3, 6, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, for holding to Jesus. Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession based on the work of this great high priest who came from heaven to die for us, who's passed through the heavens, and ending with these assuring words, for he who promised is faithful. We're even able to hold to him because he holds on to us. These are gospel essentials. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the objective content of the gospel. Not sentimental longing. Not wishful thinking. Not hoping that I did good enough or believed strong enough but confident assurance based on everything Jesus did for me. His sacrifice and His faithfulness. Hebrews 6.11, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, what we've covered so far is simply reviewing, restating, accenting what's already been said in other ways, or even in the same way. But it's so foundational, this gospel is so foundational that it needs to be restated. Just as we, as we reflect on the gospel, we need to continually to think about it and restate it and reaffirm our faith in Jesus and celebrate the gospel every day and also when we come together. Every Sunday is about celebrating this gospel. And that leads to our last point and a major new emphasis now in the book of Hebrews, let us consider, and then love comes in there, the third of the triad of faith, hope, and love, faith in Jesus Christ and His transforming work in our lives, hope in the God who keeps His promises, and love for one another in the church, the body of Christ. So let's look at verses 24 and 25. Let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good deeds. 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I suggested in the opening that Americans tend to neglect or minimize this divinely ordained means of spiritual vitality, which is the church, the community of believers in fellowship with each other, connected to each other, with lives that are somewhat intertwined. Tim Keller, preaching this same passage, rightly said, access to God leads to access to each other. Our link to Him is what makes us link together. So are we accessing each other as an essential means of spiritual growth and gospel impact toward the community as God intended? Apart from that, we will not be as effective, or effective at all rather, as in being informed and winsome ambassadors of Jesus Christ to our secular culture. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Uh, I never been on an airplane until I was 25 years old, and uh, I think I took my second flight to California in 1979 for the annual conference of the Evangelical Free Church. Stayed over the weekend with my hosts and. Uh, they took uh, me and a friend up to Kings Canyon National Park in Central California and introduced me to General Grant. How many of you have met General Grant? General Grant is big, 267 feet tall, uh, about uh, 30 feet wide. Yeah, he's a tree, if you didn't get it. He's a giant sequoia once thought to be 3,000 years old, as old going back as far as King David in the Bible. They've reassessed that and somebody's decided, no, he's just a youngster of about 1,600 years old. Um, but the tree's still quite a bit older than the Civil War general and president after whom he was named. But I'm told that this massive tree has a relatively shallow root system, only 12 to 14 feet into the ground. What keeps him standing? Why doesn't he fall over? Well, to call the root system shallow may be correct, but it's misleading. Because General Grant is believed to have a root system that spreads out to as much of an acre of ground. But even more than that, his roots are intertwined with all the other giant sequoias in the area, providing the needed support. How's that for an image of what the church is to be? Grant, General Grant thrives in large measure because he's well-rooted and interdependent. And that's what will keep us alive and strong and fruitful. John Wesley once said, I quoted a Presbyterian a couple of times, I better quote a Methodist to balance it out. Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. He was right. 
But we tend to practice solitary religion. I'm afraid too many American Christians know nothing but solitary religion. Or maybe we're just tied into one particular preacher on television or whatever. But no, essential to a spiritually healthy life is to be rooted in Jesus Christ, growing through regular intake of Scripture, prayer, service in Christ's name, taking in, putting out, but also essential is to be fully invested in the Christian community of the church, intertwined relationships of interdependence and mutual support and encouragement. That's critical. So examine this text with me. Verse 24, the most familiar part of it is not neglecting to meet together, or the way I learned it first, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And you know what that means. Application is simple. Go to church every Sunday, Sunday night as well, Wednesday night also, and any other time the doors are open. Be there. Thus says the Lord. Well, it's a great proof text uh, to enhance church attendance, but misapplied in missing the essential point. Now, I will say, I think it does mean go to church every week. I truly believe it does mean that. Don't skip unless you're sick with a highly contagious disease, and I'd appreciate it if you'd stay home for a couple of weeks. But it's not about spending all your discretionary time in this building, and it's much more than going to corporate worship or attending church events or frenetic activity or even hanging out with church people all the time, as important as that is to this theme. But a better way to put it is be the church. Look at the text. Let us consider. The writer is saying, give careful thought, pay attention, be serious about it. This is an important subject that deserves reflection, but, but what are we to consider? What, are, uh, what, what is involved here? First thing you need to notice is the mutuality that just goes through these entire verses three times. Let us consider how to stir one another. This is not solo. This is one another stuff. To love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. We're to be together, but encouraging one another. Back to that again. One another, together, one another. That's the context of this activity. It's a recognition of the body of Christ that we are in this together. We're not solo Christians. What we do, we do together in three categories. Number one, stir up one another and I'll go back to my Presbyterian friend, Tim Keller. He says, you know what that means? That means irritate each other. <laughs> oh, we're already pretty good at that, aren't we? So you can take that in a very wrong way. No, we're not to be a cause of consternation and agony and suffering and pain for each other. There's way too much of that. But no, to stimulate one another to love and good works. That may sometimes create discomfort. The NIV says spur one another on. If the cowboy is wearing spurs on his boots and digs those spurs into the flanks of the horse he's riding, he's going to get some movement out of that horse. And so we're to motivate one another to be and do what we're called to be and do, to motivate to love, 
to acts of self-sacrifice, acts of goodness and kindness, meeting practical needs within the church, being sensitive to the needs of those around us, reaching out then to meet practical needs outside of the church, serving your co-workers. Are you a servant to those you work with? Even if you're the boss, you still need to be a servant to them. Have a servant heart. Serve your neighbors. Reach out and serve immigrants, which is thrilling to see what so many of you are doing in that way. Or touching some of the worst of human needs or human tragedies such as human trafficking that's been so much in the headlines again the last two or three days. But love and good deeds. Then verse 25 introduces the second category, not neglecting to meet together. Uh, Two key words make up the phrase, neglecting and meet together. Meet together is the word for synagogue. It's it's where you have the temple in Jerusalem, but then the people couldn't go to Jerusalem on a regular basis. So they were still supposed to connect with each other. So they connected at the synagogue. Not neglecting is a double negative. It's a little awkward, but it means don't not meet. Don't not meet. Now, because I'm naturally self-centered, unlike all of you, I'm sure, I I initially interpret this phrase very selfishly, and and I miss the larger issue. I say, yeah, I, I need to go to church because it's good for me to go to church. I, 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 need, I need to go there. Regular attendance is a huge positive. I need to be here. I need to be with you. But that's only part of it. I need to be every week, here, week, every, here every week for me, yes. But it's far more than that. The word neglecting is the same word Jesus used in his cry of dereliction from the cross. Do you know the words? Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour after six hours of hanging there in indescribable agony, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my friends, the Father wasn't distracted that day and just neglected to notice that his son was suffering a horrible death. No, the father forsook his sin-bearing son during those six hours. He abandoned the sin-bearer who paid that ultimate price for our sin, abandoned by God. That's the worst of Christ's suffering. And that's what he saved us from in hell. Abandonment by God. Same word. So I'm suggesting this is more than passive neglect. This is active abandonment. When you don't come, you are abandoning a responsibility and forsaking a covenant relationship, hurting yourself and the church. And the church means people by your absence. It's not just self-harm of staying away, but the harm you do to others by not being here. And so stir up one another to love and good works. But after the 
uh, negative warning of not neglecting to meet together, we come back with a positive, but encouraging one another. To encourage means to come alongside, to help, to assist, to uh, give empathetic support, in some sense the opposite of stirring or spurring or irritating, but a necessary compliment. It's the same word John uses in John 16 for the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside to help us and encourage us and convict us of sin. We need each other. We need to be challenged by one another. We need to be encouraged by one another. We need to be together. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, the day of judgment, which means there's a limit to how much time there is in terms of sharing the good news with others. And also, it's the great day of the new heavens and the new earth. Let me make one final observation. The commands to stir up one another, to meet together and encourage one another are not fulfilled on Sunday alone. I hope that's obvious. Or in church meetings alone, for that matter. But in terms of how we get together, those those who read this uh, letter first were more likely in small house churches, in small villages. More like community groups that have been more popular in the last 50 years. But we didn't invent them. The New Testament models it. It's where in small groups of close relationships, you can actually ask that obnoxious question, how are you? Where you eat together and play together and learn together and confess and cry and pray together and celebrate together and grieve together out of deepening interrelated relationships, personal relationships. And the smaller the group, the more likely to have true transparency in sharing your deepest concerns. Some things only happen in one-to-one relations. You can ask me how I am all day long. There's a lot of things I won't tell you. But there's three or four men in this room that I will tell everything. And there's another half dozen in other parts of the country that I'll tell everything. The greater transparency that is needed. We all need that. Because Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has brought us into a relationship with God, let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast our hope. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to consider what this text says and to act on it for your glory through Christ, our great high priest. Amen.